It's Monday, September 21st in Los Angeles. I'm Mo Kelly, in for Oscar Ramirez, and this is The Daily Dive. One team from Massachusetts General Hospital considered whether Google searches for GI issues might be a way to spot COVID-19 hotspots early. Claire Maldarelli, associate editor for Popular Science, lays out how your computer keystrokes may serve as a stroke of genius in weathering the pandemic in future months. Then, nobody would doubt whether cyclists competing in the Tour de France are exceptional athletes. But did you know they often have trouble walking average distances? Joshua Robinson, European sports reporter for the Wall Street Journal, will join us from the French Alps with his insight. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. But a few people, and a narrow percentage, about 10%, actually get um, gastrointestinal symptoms. So that's vomiting or diarrhea or just overall abdominal pain. And they found that those people tend, because of, you know, no one likes to experience those symptoms, they tend to Google their symptoms. Joining us now is Claire Maldarelli, Associate Editor for Popular Science. Thank you for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited. One team from Massachusetts General Hospital has considered whether Google searches for gastrointestinal issues might be a way to spot COVID-19 hotspots early. Tell me about some of the methodology that they used. Yeah, so basically they decided that, um, you know, there's so many symptoms of COVID-19 and a lot of them are respiratory symptoms like shortness of breath, fever, Um, But a few people, and a narrow percentage, about 10%, actually get um, gastrointestinal symptoms. So that's uh, vomiting or diarrhea or just overall abdominal pain. And they found that those people tend, because of, you know, no one likes to experience those symptoms, they tend to Google um, their symptoms. And they found a correlation between or they considered whether a correlation between uh, searching for these gastrointestinal symptoms would then correlate with being able to predict when a COVID-19 hotspot would occur. So if there will be a spike in cases based on people searching for these GI symptoms on Google. That's fascinating because in this WebMD world, I would say it would seem to me that we would be searching for anything and everything all the time just because we're, I would say, latent hypochondriacs, if if you will, always worried about any and all symptoms. How do they do this to the best of your knowledge? How do they drill down as far as the, I would say, the random searches from the very specific searches about something that which is impacting someone, if that makes sense? Yeah, definitely. So they use Google Trends and basically looked at and specifically narrowed down to just gastrointestinal symptoms searching only or looking for those symptoms only. Got and it. Yes, I will also attest that I am a frequent WebMD user, even as a health reporter. So. <laughs> okay, so the, the symptoms, have they been consistent from hotspot to hotspot? In other words, what they found maybe in China as far as people, what they may be Googling, has that been shown to be the same in nature or trending the same in the way that what we saw maybe in New York or other places? 
Yeah, it's a really good question. And right now, it's still a little bit hard to tell. They found some promising data, and this study was actually published back in July. And when we did our story, we interviewed a couple more gastroenterologists. And what they have said is that, you know, GI symptoms are definitely, can definitely be part of COVID-19, um, but it's usually only a small percentage of those people. So about 10% of people actually develop GI symptoms and then go on to have COVID-19. But what they found was that it can be predictive because first, people are always searching their GI symptoms, it seems like. And then second, all the people in that 10% group, all the people that have those GI symptoms, then a little while later ended up getting the other more common symptoms of COVID-19. So it definitely seems to be the case that these GI symptoms can predict um, COVID-19, but it's just that not everybody is going to be getting these GI symptoms. It's only about 10% I of go- people. And so the big question um, is whether or not we can use this small 10% to predict whether big spikes will happen. I want to go back and get back, go back and get something you said. And I want to make sure I understood you correctly. Are you suggesting mm-hmm. that maybe these GI symptoms are usually leading the way as COVID-19 enters the body and the body shows symptoms. These are usually the first symptoms that people would see in some of these cases? Yeah, definitely. So again, it's only 10% of people usually experience these GI symptoms. But in that 10%, it's usually the GI symptoms first, followed by later these more common symptoms such as fever, shortness of breath, upper respiratory or lower respiratory symptoms. That would seem strange. And I'm not a, a physician. I'm just playing one on the radio, it seems right now. But in terms of what we would classically think of a respiratory disease, we we're told about how the disease would enter through our mouth or our nose or our eyes. But the first symptoms would have nothing to do with that. It would be actually the other end of the body. Is that correct? Yeah, it's actually interesting. I mean, there's, you know, COVID-19 is a new disease, so there's still so much we don't know about it. But uh, researchers have been able to pinpoint what they think is a mechanism that makes um, this occurrence make sense. So there are these receptors called ACE receptors, and they sit on various cells in the body, and they happen to sit on um, cells in the lungs and in the arteries, but then they also happen to be in the gastrointestinal tract. And so researchers think that maybe it's um, the virus that is attaching to these ACE receptors in the lungs and the arteries and other areas that are more common um, attacked in COVID-19, but then they're also hitting the GI tract first. But also the question of whether, of why it hits your stomach or your whole GI system first before it hits um, your upper respiratory system or your lower respiratory system, rather, that's still very much unknown. I understand that this is a, for lack of a better phrase, a white paper at this point. It is a study, but have there been any practical applications as of yet with this information to help people in real time? There haven't yet, and that's a great question and great thing to point out. There haven't been any um, more more substantial um, studies or you know real time usage of this yet. But a lot of researchers think that 
it could be a good way to predict COVID-19 hotspots. And going forward, um, these researchers and potentially other ones will be able to keep tracking this data and see if they can actually use it um, as a as a predictor of, of where COVID-19 could spike. Not knowing necessarily how the flu uh, progresses through the body, whether it's similar or not in this way. Is there any overlap from what you know or what you can see as far as how uh, the symptoms uh, materialize in the body for the flu? And will that in any way impact um, this particular study? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the flu definitely attacks the body in similar ways to COVID-19, but also different ways as well, because they are two different diseases and two different viruses that are hitting our immune systems and the rest of our bodies. So um, it's it's hard to tell right now because COVID is so new, um, but it is an interesting question uh, that I think a lot of researchers will be investigating over, over the next year. She's Claire Maldarelli, Associate Editor for Popular Science. Claire, thank you again for coming on today. Thanks. This was great. Thanks for having me. They have a very strict program of self-enforced laziness. Uh, And the (laughs) mantra is uh, never stand if you can sit and never sit if you can lie down. Um, Every ounce of energy has to be spent on the bike because that's just how hard this sporting event is. Joining us now is Joshua Robinson, European sports reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Joshua, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me. I found your latest piece on the Tour de France very fascinating. Tour de France riders will cover more than 2,100 miles cycling, but asking riders to walk 10,000 steps in a day may be a near impossible feat for them. What happens to a rider's body who is committed to cycling on this level? Guys at the Tour de France have made this their life, Um, and basically what happens is a total reconfiguration of what their body is about, which is essentially becoming an engine to power a bicycle. Um, And what you get is so much of that strain falls on your legs, and it it is excruciating. Um, I mean, 2,100 miles over three weeks, you would never invent the Tour de France as a sporting event today. Luckily, it was invented in 1903, so... They just kept going with it. Um, and because the, the exercise is so specific and so targeted, they save their legs uh, as much as possible for to put out as much energy as possible on the road. Um, and what that means is they have a very strict program of self-enforced laziness. Uh, and the <laughs> mantra is uh, never stand if you can sit and never sit if you can lie down. Uh, every ounce of energy has to be spent on the bike because that's just how hard this sporting event is. Given how difficult the sport is, and nobody would doubt the fitness of the riders, the physical fitness, but one might question the long-term implications of something which you just told me, this focused muscle behavior and stress on the body. If Greg LeMond or Miguel Indurain were here, I'd ask them about how their bodies have aged over the past mm-hmm. 30 years, but they're not, so I'm going to ask you. What have you encountered <laughs> or seen with riders long-term after their careers are over? Well, it's very important once their careers are over for them to kind of diversify the the exercise they do because that level of specificity can create some muscular imbalances uh, in the body. 
uh, for anyone who applies that too strictly. And because cycling is not a load-bearing sport, or, or uh, you know, you're, you're you're not lifting anything, you're not challenging your bone structure uh, in the same way as you would say just lifting weights. Um, it can lead to issues like uh, lower bone density and eventually osteoporosis. Chris Boardman, who was a, a British champion on the track, uh, suffered with uh, with some bone diseases after with, with some bone uh, 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 density issues after his career uh, ended. So it's something that they have to be mindful of, and that you know that's why today some physiologists are also challenging this idea of. Uh, you know, relax and recover as much as possible and do nothing else but cycle. Is there any related muscle atrophy either during their careers or after their careers? You say if they're, if they're focusing on their lower body and their cycling specifically, I'm quite sure they're not doing much with their upper body. Have there been other upper body strength issues that cyclists may endure? Not those would be more specific to individual athletes, but all you have to do is look at some of the guys at the Tour de France, and you know that uh, you could probably beat any of them in an arm wrestling match. <laughs> um, they, because all the power really comes from their legs and their cores, uh, they are not developing their upper bodies at all, and it's to the point where uh, they sometimes won't even carry their own luggage or groceries because they don't want to put any excess muscle on their arms or shoulders. Um, and that all comes down to the fact that cycling, especially when you're in the mountains, comes down to very simple math. It's all how much power can you put out uh, relative to your weight. So if they can drop as much weight as possible without uh, impacting the power they put out, then you're necessarily going to be faster in the mountains. It's simple as that. Undeniably, cycling is an aerobic activity, and so the respiratory function plays a, a considerable role, I would assume, assume you would con correct me if I'm wrong. How has COVID-19 impacted either the preparation or the participation of athletes in an event like this? It's a great question. Um, and so the a lot of these guys are based in Europe, and a lot of Europe was fully locked down uh, earlier this year. So guys spent a lot of time for the first time in their careers training indoors for weeks on end um, uh, on things like turbo trainers that mimic the resistance of, uh, of the road and, you know, at, at different angles and with software like Zwift where they, uh, it basically is a, a cycling video game. Um, so they ran a lot of virtual events uh, and virtual training sessions like that. Um, but the other thing is that when it came to putting cycling back on the road and back outside, they had to take immense precautions um, because, as you say, riders' livelihoods depend on uh, on their cardiovascular functions and their and their respiratory functions. Um, so, when it came time for the Tour de France, which they delayed by two months from its normal July slot, they attempted something pretty daring which was put the whole Tour de France in a bubble. Um, and what that means is that every team nominated 30 people, which meant the eight riders and the team and the, the support staff. So, you know, uh, coaches, masseurs, chefs, uh, directors. And those 30 people uh, really don't come into contact with the rest of the race at all. 
mm-hmm. they don't they don't interact with fans they don't interact with media they just move from stage to stage from hotel to hotel taking all their precautions hand sanitizer and the rest and the only time the riders interact with anybody that isn't in that bubble is the other riders in the peloton that speaks to the health of the riders individually but what about the health of the sport collectively we know that the tour de france has suffered from some bad press over the years because of incidents and individuals such as lance armstrong how would you characterize the health of the sport and also its perception worldwide cyclists will tell you that they are some of the most uh, the most tested athletes in sports um and there hasn't been a rash of uh, positive doping control do- doping test the way there was during a certain period in recent years and the biggest challenge for the health of the sport today is really more financial, um, and that's why it was so important for the Tour de France to find a way to go ahead this year, um, because that those three weeks are when teams get the most exposure. That's really what the sponsors are paying for. They're not paying for all the other races. Uh, you know, they know that the Tour de France is the one that gets on television the most, that has that draws the most eyeballs, and that's where. You know, the, the jerseys are going to be seen. So everything really revolved around the tour happening this year. And then it's a question of, um, you know, how how things will be reassessed for next year and whether teams are able to absorb the, the financial hit that every business in the, in the world seems to be uh, dealing with post-COVID. So the thing that they have to face now is can we continue operating on the shoestring budgets that we operate on and are the margins, uh, will the margins continue to exist so that sponsors find reason to, to back cycling teams? You said something which I found very interesting as far as how these athletes were training during the height of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Here in the United States, there has been um, a trend where more and more people, since they could not go to gyms, they were using exercise bikes in a general sense at yeah. home and companies like Peloton have exploded in popularity. Has that mm-hmm. phenomenon been seen in the UK or Europe more broadly? Uh, absolutely. Everyone was trying to figure out ways to stay, uh, stay in shape at home. And with the cyclists in particular who need, you know, a very high level of very specific cycling training, which, you know, Peloton can be almost, uh, anything you want. Uh, you know, it's, it's a bike, but you do all kinds of other stuff on, on Peloton and, and Peloton type apparatus. But with a turbo trainer, which is what all these guys use, they are putting their road bike on a kind of rolling cylinder which is connected to a computer and a, and a pretty high-tech system. But that cylinder creates resistance just like the road and matches what you would feel if you're going up, say, an 8% climb. And suddenly it gets tougher and you're shifting the gears on the bike you would race. Um, and that's how these guys were really replicating the, the sensations. Of course, you know you end up with some pretty big puddles in the middle of your living room, but that's what the pros are there for fascinating he is joshua robinson european sports reporter for the wall street journal joshua thank you so much for that really really engaging conversation thank you for coming on today my pleasure thanks for having me all right that's it for today join us on social media at daily dive pod on both twitter and instagram Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories you are interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe where you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Mo Kelly, in for Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.